but would you please welcome with me uh, Ryan Butes this morning. Well, good morning. It is great to be back. I think it's been a couple years since, uh, since we've been back here. Uh, and it's always great to come back. Emmanuel has always just loved us. Uh, you guys are one of our most faithful uh, praying churches that we have. In fact, just a couple hours ago, about 6,000 miles away in Amsterdam, there was a church plant called Dahava that was meeting for probably its 10th time uh, today. And that church is a direct result of the prayers that come uh, from churches like Emmanuel. So for all of you guys who uh, have lifted us up before, I say thank you. Uh, it is making a difference overseas uh, with our new church plant, Dahava. Uh, this morning we brought uh, some new updated prayer cards. Many of you have an old prayer card of ours on our refrigerator. And if you've seen our kids walking around today, you're, you probably don't even recognize them because they have grown. Well, we have... We have, we have updated our prayer cards, so if you would like to have one of those, uh, they're on the, the table back by the, 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 that white money tree back there in, in, on the other side of this wall. You can go ahead and grab one. Um, if you don't receive our prayer updates, there's also a prayer sign-up sheet um, that you can sign up for if you'd like to receive our monthly prayer updates. That is our lifeline. That is the gasoline of our ministry engine, your prayers. They really, really make a difference. So if you'd be interested uh, in, in praying for us, we would love to have you. Uh, our prayer warrior team. So there's a sign-up sheet uh, out there as well um, for that. So let me start this morning. Let me start in prayer. Let me start in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to teach your word. Lord, it is an awesome responsibility to proclaim your word, Father. And I don't take it lightly. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity, Lord. I ask that you would give me clarity of speech, clarity of, of thought, Lord, clarity of communication as I seek to, to, to teach what you've written 2,000 years ago, Lord, and, and how it still applies to us today, Father. If there's anything I say that is not accurate, not of you, Lord, may it fall on deaf ears. If there's anything that is of you, Lord, may it find good soil. May it convict and pierce hearts, Father. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we have your word. Lord, there are churches gathered today that don't have Bibles, Father. So we thank you that we can do this today. We love you. In your name, amen. Henry Thoreau was, a, was an essayist in the 19th century. He was very famous. He, he wrote all kinds of things. Um, when he was close to death, he was visited by his aunt. His aunt was this very pious woman. He's lying on his deathbed, and his aunt goes to visit him and says, Henry, have you made your peace with God? To which Henry, in, in the way that only Thoreau could do, says, Peace? I didn't realize we'd ever quarreled. And in many ways, it, it, it's humorous, but there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in our near area that would probably answer the exact same way today if we were to ask them about that. Now, the Bible says that Thoreau needs reconciliation. That's the word the Bible uses. But that's like a $500. What is reconciliation? What does that even mean? Well, reconciliation is this idea of going from, from hostility to peace. Where, where, where previously there was, there was hostility between two people, two groups, two forces. Now there's peace. It's this enmity to friendship. Okay? It is something that is beautiful. It's healing. And it's something that God is a master at doing. Now, Thoreau didn't know that he had enmity with God. But he did. We all do, actually. So as, what does 
reconciliation have to do with us as Christ followers? That's what we're going to talk about today. Because actually the Bible says quite a bit. So if you'd open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or maybe power them on uh, if you have your phone. We're going to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. And while you're turning to there, I'm going to give a little bit of background about 2 Corinthians. Because if you're like me, sometimes these letters kind of all blend together, and you can't remember who's writing when to where and so forth. So 2 Corinthians was written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. It was written on his third missionary journey. Now, if all those journeys kind of blend together, the third missionary journey was the one where Paul was preaching and Eutychus fell and died. <laughs> Remember that? And then Paul goes and raises him from the dead. It's like every preacher's nightmare to have somebody fall and die from a window. Um, but that was on the third missionary journey. And Paul was writing from Macedonia. Today, that's kind of this northern Greece area. And he was writing to the church in Corinth. And he uh, had visited Corinth in about 51 A.D., wrote his first letter, which we call 1 Corinthians, in 54, and then was writing this follow-up in 55 A.D., so quite some time ago. Now, Corinth, if you don't know anything about Corinth, was this major metropolitan area. It was huge with maritime trade. It had the Isthmian Games, which was kind of like the precursor to the Olympics. To kind of put it in modern context, you should be thinking like New York City or Hong Kong or London, okay? It was a very influential city and just like those cities today it was not an easy place to minister so keep that in mind as we're going through our passage today he's not talking about going to birmingham alabama and, and, and trying to do this these were some very hard places um, that that uh, paul was talking about so let's go to second corinthians chapter 5 we're going to start in verse 11 we're going to finish in 21 it says since then we know what it is to fear the lord we try to persuade men what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, but we once regarded Christ in this way, do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, <laughs> there is a lot to unpack in the passage, and we can't get to all of it today, but we are going to look at some key things, because there are some directly relevant things that Paul has written 2,000 years ago that affect us in this room today. And the way we're going to look at this today can kind of be nicely looked at through uh, the idea of our motive and our ministry and our message. I'm not big on alliteration, but it kind of fits nicely this time. So let's, let's just kind of go through this passage and see what's going on here. Let's start in verse 11, where Paul says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. 
what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. Okay, he has this, this, this thing, he's talking about this fear of the Lord. Now, some people might say that this fear of the Lord that Paul's talking about, it's kind of this idea of you know, like awe and respect and, 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 and reverence, because there are places in the scriptures where fear of the Lord is used that way. I would argue that that's actually not what Paul is using it in this particular instance. Because if you go back one verse from what we started to verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Whoa. We have to stand before God and give an account for the things we've done, whether good or bad. Paul is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. If you've, if you've never read Revelation 20... There is some heavy stuff in that passage that's talking about this someday. So Paul is, is recognizing that everybody, you, me, the people he's writing to in Corinth, your neighbors down the street, all of us are going to stand before this, this judgment seat someday. And that is something that we don't take lightly. So that's what Paul is talking about, this, this fear of the Lord. It's an understanding of, of really what judgment can look like. And then he says... Because of that, we persuade men. Now, Paul's going to unpack this more fully as we get to verse 20. But this idea of persuading men, what he's really talking about, is sharing the good news of salvation. That's what this persuading men is. Now, for Paul, what he's saying is that I understand what the judgment is to come. And I understand my job is to persuade other people. And he took this so seriously that Paul was willing to be shipwrecked. He was willing to be robbed. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was humiliated publicly. He was broke. He gave up everything that he knew to share this message because he understood what judgment was coming for everybody. That's what Paul did. That's somebody that understands what is coming. That's, a, that's a, an eternal perspective, and that's what Paul is telling us in this verse. He then moves on to, to back up his point in verse 14 where he says, For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. He's starting to build on this idea of our life's purpose. But he uses this interesting word, compelled. We are compelled by Christ's love. Have you ever asked yourself, are you compelled by Christ's love? Are you passionate about your faith? In your deepest of thoughts, do you love him to say, do you love him enough to say that your love actually compels you to share your faith with other people? And if not, why not? So what, what does that look like to live for him and not for yourself? The best example I've ever heard came a couple hundred years ago. It was actually October 8th, 1732. Two young Moravian men were in the Danish harbor of Copenhagen. And they were getting ready to board a boat to go to the Danish West Indies, where their purpose was to sell themselves into slavery. Because they wanted to reach the slaves in the West Indies who had no other way of hearing the gospel of Christ. So John Leonard Dober and David Nietzsche got on board the, the, the ship and it began to sail out of the harbor. And the, and the harbor was aligned with the Moravians' brothers and sisters. Some of them were super excited, and they were shouting out scriptures and praise. They were singing hymns. Others were weeping because they knew they would never see them again, the side of eternity. And as the ship started sailing out of the harbor, one of the two men ran to the back of the boat to yell out the reason 
that they were selling themselves. He said, so that the lamb that was slain might receive the reward of his suffering. That slogan, that, that phrase went on to be a slogan for the next 200 years as the Moravians sent missionaries all across the globe. That's a faith that's compelled by love. That's a faith that understands what eternity looks like. That's what it looks like to no longer live for yourself. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you have given your life to Christ, you are a new creation. That old is gone, the new has come. That is fantastic. As you'll see in a few minutes, that's just step one. But that is fantastic. If you are not a new creation, if you've never given your life to Christ, I would encourage you to ask yourself, why not? I would encourage you actually right now, as I say this sentence, to do it in the comfort of your own seat. Because as you'll see, those of us that have, we have some responsibilities. So, this first part is then our motive. Paul is talking about our reasoning. What is our motive? Because of fear of the Lord, the judgment that's coming, we are compelled by his love, we are a new creation, and we no longer live for ourselves. That's the why. Now, what do we do with that? <laughs> Let's go to verse 18. It says, All this is from God, who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Now remember our definition of reconciliation. It's this idea of going from hostility to peace or from enmity to friendship. Four times in two verses, Paul uses this big word, reconciliation. It's a, it's a literary technique. He's like waving this big red flag saying, this is important, pay attention. He also talks about it in Ephesians 1, uh, or Ephesians 2, Colossians 1, and Romans um, as well. We're not going to look at those today, but he's saying this is important, guys. We are going to stand before the judgment seat someday, and Paul is telling us to be reconciled. And so if Paul is telling us to be reconciled, that means that there is or was some state of enmity or hostility between you and God. And for Paul, there's a sense of urgency. In the next verse, he's going to say the word implores. He's literally begging us. But as he talks about reconciliation, there's something very key. There's a theological principle here that is absolutely key that you understand. Notice what he says. He says, all this is from God. That's the starting point. It begins with his will, and he did because we couldn't. And it's done through Jesus as the medium or the agent to be reconciled back to God. It's the end destination. It starts with God, it goes through Jesus, and it goes back to God. Notice your good works are not mentioned in that passage. <laughs> it's not about your good works. Outside these doors, there are millions of people... They think it has something to do with their good works. And it doesn't. It was done by God through Jesus to bring us back to God. And he has committed to us this message, this ministry of reconciliation. Social, social justice ministries are fantastic. They really are. But this is the ministry that God, through Paul, is telling us today is what he expects out of us to do. So, what does that look like? Here's where we're getting to the meat. 
verse 20, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. This last phrase, was, we implore you to be reconciled to God, in the Greek, it's actually in the command form, which really means, in the Greek language, there is no stronger way to communicate something that is expected to be done than what Paul uses right here. We implore you to be reconciled to God. The answer is right there in verse 20. We are Christ's ambassadors. Great. Ryan, what is an ambassador? Glad you asked. Webster's got a definition. Webster says that it's a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative of his own government or sovereign appointed for a special diplomatic mission. What does that mean? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good definition, but I actually think that there's a much better one that communicates what Paul's trying to say. That's a definition actually John MacArthur came up. I'm going to read this out loud. But as I read it, I want something to, to, to change in your brain. Every time you hear me say the word ambassador, I want you to put your name in there. And every time you hear me say the word government or ruler, I want you to hear God. John says, an ambassador, Ryan, represents his government, God, in all of its character, in all of its dignity, in all of its philosophy. To then scorn an ambassador or mistreat him is to scorn or mistreat the government which he represents. To send him away is to break off relations with the government and the ruler whom he represents. An ambassador speaks wholly for his ruler through his ruler's mouthpiece. He is his ruler's mouthpiece. He never utters his own thoughts. He never offers promises or demands his own things, but rather those things of his kingdom. And certainly an ambassador's person and character and virtue lend weight to the authenticity and dignity of the kingdom. So an ambassador then is a messenger. An ambassador is a representative. His message and his authority are given to him by his king. That's really scary to think about. That's how God views us. That's how God views me. That's petrifying to me. I am his mouthpiece. I am his representative. Friends, like you, I am a sinner. And yet God is looking at me to represent him. He's looking at you to represent him. Now, not all of you have to get on an airplane and go to Amsterdam to do that. You are his ambassador in your cubicle, in your office, to your neighbor, to your family members, in your classroom at school. That is where your diplomatic outpost, if you will, is. And God has put you in that place to be his mouthpiece. That's what Paul is saying right here. The king is making his appeal through us, guys. We are God's plan A, and there is no plan B. There is no backup plan if we fail to do our job. There is no, oh, somebody else can take care of that. You may be the only person in your office, in your cubicle, in your school, that can be his representative. The church is not a social club designed to meet its members' needs. Guys, this is a forward operating base in the middle of a war, and the stakes are eternity. And we, when we leave these doors, we are his ambassadors. We are his representative to a fallen world that is running straight toward hell's gates right now. So what did it look like to actually be an ambassador? Several years ago, it was late at night, and a salesman drove into a strange city. 
and he tried to get a room at a hotel. Now, this was before Booking.com came, came into place. But the whole clerk, hotel clerk told the man that there was no vacancy, and so the man was, was upset. He didn't know where he was going to go. So disappointed, he started to leave the lobby when a man who had overheard the situation said, Hey, I've got an extra spot in my room. Would you like to come stay with me? The salesman was grateful, and he accepted the offer. And just before turning in for the night, the man who had shown the hospitality got down on his knees, and he prayed. And during his prayer, he mentioned the salesman by name, and he asked God to bless him. When he woke the next morning, he told the salesman that he liked to spend his mornings by reading the Bible and praying to start the day, and he asked the salesman if he'd like to join him. Well, the Holy Spirit was clearly at work in the heart of the salesman, because when the host shared the message of salvation, the message of reconciliation, he gladly accepted Christ as the Savior. And at the time of checkout, the two were ready to part. They exchanged business cards. And you can imagine the look of surprise on the salesman's face when he looked down at that business card and it said, William Brian Jennings, Secretary of State. Now, in many ways, I guess that was kind of like a double ambassador, right? I mean, Secretary of State and all. But if I'm really honest with you guys, I don't know that I invite that man in. Maybe he's a murderer. Maybe he's a weirdo. Maybe he snores really loud. I don't know. But I don't invite him in, probably. And look what I would have missed out on. A name being written in the book of life for all eternity. William Brian Jennings was an ambassador for Christ that day. So, how does one get reconciled to God? We know in the Old Testament there's all kinds of talks about sacrifices and so forth. How does one get reconciled to God? That is verse 21. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. If you can only memorize one verse, you know, besides John 3:16, let it be this one. This is just the most beautiful verse. It says, God made him, he's talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. We could do an entire sermon on this one verse. There is some, some, some significant statements in, in this verse here. It may be the most profound verse in the entire Bible. We've seen the why. We understand the coming judgment. We're compelled by Christ's love. And we're new creations in Christ. We've seen how. As his ambassadors. Paul is now telling us the what. This is the part that Thoreau didn't understand when he said, I didn't know we'd ever quarreled. This is the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation and atonement, that's the fancy theological word for what this verse is talking about, are so intertwined that in in the Dutch language where I minister, it's the exact same word. They don't have two separate words for reconciliation or atonement. It's the same word. This message and what a person does with it is what separates you from heaven and hell. It's that serious. Paul calls us as his ambassadors to be ministers of reconciliation. Okay, I want you to turn to your neighbor and look at your neighbor and say, you are a minister of reconciliation of God. Now turn to the other neighbor and say, I am a minister of reconciliation of God. (laughs) Yes. Now that may seem silly, but I want you to hear yourself say it. Because this is not this abstract principle of somebody else. This is you. You are a minister of reconciliation of God. Everything we do, therefore, is done with this idea of representing Christ and persuading others. I don't know 
some people feel that evangelism requires a special training. You have to go through this eight-week course here. You have to memorize all these scriptures. You have to know the special questions to ask. The other day, I was reading in, in, in Mark chapter 5. You, you, know, you know the story. It's where Jesus heals the, the demoniac, and he said, oh, the legion of demons into the pig. The pigs go off to the cliffs, and everybody gets upset. You, know, you, you remember that story? Anybody? Okay, perfect. At the end of that story, there was something I had never noticed before. Ten minutes after Jesus liberates this guy, what does he do? Does he say, all right, you know, you're free, healthy, be warm and be filled, and walks away? No. He commissions him as a missionary to Decapolis, ten cities. He says, go and represent me and tell people there what I've done for you. Ten minutes. The guy did not get to complete Discipleship 101. But he went and he told them what had been done for him. That's being an ambassador. So it doesn't take this super special training. Now, I'm not bashing evangelism programs at all. I've taught quite a few of them, and I've been through even more of them. But what I'm saying is that if that's your excuse that you're holding on to that you don't know, well, this guy was possessed by demons, and like 10 minutes later, he answered the call. So I don't think what well, your situation is probably that bad, right? <laughs> but all joking aside, guys, this is really serious. Because if you think this is just an exercise in theory, I want to remind you that every two seconds, somebody dies and spends an eternity in hell. Every two seconds, somebody is dying and an eternity away from Christ. Some of you today may need to think about how well you've been doing in persuading others to be followers of Christ and how well you're representing them and sharing your faith. I don't know if you saw this or not, but in February, a Barna report came out that said 47% of church-going active Christian millennials believe it is wrong to share your faith with somebody else. And a Lifeway report came out earlier this week that said 55% of all evangelical Christians had not shared their faith in six months. Imagine if the person who shared Jesus with you, a friend, co-worker, a parent, Sunday school teacher, whoever that was, whoever shared this message of reconciliation with you, what if they had that same philosophy? Where would you be at today? Or maybe it's just an issue of apathy. Maybe if you're really being honest with yourself, you'd say, you know what, Ryan, that's great. I just don't care. There was a famous criminal, Charles Peace, that was being executed in London some years ago, back when London still carried out capital punishment. And prison chaplain, as he's being led up to the gallows, offers him the, the consoles of religion, to which a bitter Charles Peace turns to that chaplain and says, Do you believe that? Do you really believe that message? Because if I believe that, I would crawl across broken glass the length of England to tell people that message. That's convicting. That's really convicting. That's somebody who understands what being compelled by love looks like, even if he rejects the message. Friends, I want you to take a moment and think about somebody in your life that you know personally that doesn't know Christ. Could be a classmate, coworker, family member, friend, person at Starbucks you see every Tuesday morning, whoever it is. I want you to picture their face in your mind. And right now, that person is running towards the gates of hell 
God has forgiven you of your sins. He's reconciled you back to Him. You are looking at an eternity in heaven with Him when He calls you home. But until that day, He has sent you here as His ambassador. And what He's asking you to do is to share the message from the King about reconciliation with that person. Reconciling them back to Him. As I finish our time together, I want you to think about what is one specific step that you can do to help that person take just one step closer to Christ. Okay, I'm not asking you to, to go, you know, do this whole Billy Graham crusade at your church or at your work. If you do, that's great. That's not what I'm asking. But what is one small step you can do? You know, if they're 10 steps away from Christ, how can you make them just nine steps? How can you make them eight steps? Friends, as new creations in Christ, God has given us a job. Just one job. That's the good news. We are his ambassadors. An ambassador gives messages from the king. What's that message the king wants us to give? That message of reconciling them back to him. We do that because we are compelled by love for him, because we are a new creation, and because we love Jesus so much, we cannot not share our faith. As I finish, we are at a crossroads this morning, guys. In just a few minutes, you're going to walk out those doors, and you are out of a fork in the road. You can say, oh, that was a nice message, that was a good idea, a good thought, and you can just go on your merry way to lunch, and nothing ever changes again. Or you could use this time right now as a new chapter in your life, a new chapter where you are consciously and actively seeing yourself the way that God sees you, the way that Paul writes about that you are his ambassador, his representative here on earth for as many days as you have left. Maybe that's tomorrow. Maybe it's 90 years from now. As many days as you have left, you are his ambassador here. But one day, the king is going to call each one of us home. Just like we see ambassadors get pulled back when a new president comes in. Our king is going to call us back home, and we will stand before him. And he's going to say, how did you do as my ambassador? Did you give that message to those citizens that I wanted you to give? Did you represent me in everything that you did? And each one of you, and I'm talking to myself too, each one of us is going to have to give an account for that, guys. And so I implore you, be ready. Be ready for that. Okay. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you love us enough to... To, to give us this responsibility. You don't just create your creation to go about and, 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 and go on their merry way, but you want us an active part of your redeeming work in this world today. It is an awesome responsibility that we do not feel equipped for, Father. So I pray for every single person in this room, Lord. Would you give them the confidence, Father? Would you give them just that, 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 that sense of, of connection with you, that you are there with them as they represent you, as they go about their day, Father? Lord, I thank you that you've created reconciliation for us, that we, we can be back with you, that our sins have separated us from you, and that you have built that bridge back, Lord. Help us to be confident and to have the, 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 the courage to share that message with other people as we go about our diplomatic post that you have placed us in life, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and in your name, amen.